0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll, and is from the 19th Sunday after Pentecost. Well, it's a good day to be a Cubs fan. Cubs are on the way to the National League Championship, and I remember my first Cubs game. It was 15 years ago when I first came to this area. I was a student and a freshman, and some of my friends said, let's, let's go down to the city catch a Cubs game. Now, it was Labor Day, so they had what's called a doubleheader two games for the price of one ticket. So we went, they were playing the Milwaukee Brewers, and we sat in the bleacher seats, the cheap seats, but we were hoping to get a home run ball. The first game, honestly, was pretty mediocre. Cubs lost 3 to 2, nobody homered. And it was getting pretty hot in the sun, so we started to deliberate while the players were on their one-hour break between the two games. And we said, well, if we stay through the end of the second game, we'll get home at such and such a time, and it is getting pretty hot out here. So we all decided to get up and go. So in the top of the first inning of the second game, we left the ballpark. No sooner had we stepped outside of the ballpark than we heard this raucous roar and cheer from the stadium up behind us. We said, oh, well, that didn't happen in the first game, so we kept going. Uh, We're sitting there at the L station, only a few blocks away from the stadium, and in the 15 minutes waiting for our train to come, about every two or three minutes, another great uproar of cheer and applause resounded from the stadium. When we got back to, to school, we checked on the game. Cubs had won 17 3. Everybody hit a home run. Sammy homered twice. He hit a grand slam, and Kerry Wood, who was pitching, tied a major league record for striking out four batters in a single inning. And if you know your baseball, innings have three outs, and he struck out four. That's why it's a major league record. (laughs) The parable today is about who is worthy of the kingdom of heaven. It's a question that anybody who's had a single religious thought has probably wondered at some point. Who gets to go to heaven? Who is worthy? I won't build up the suspense about the answer to our question. The answer is this God will say, You are worthy, to those who have said to God, You are worthy. Let me say that again. God will say, you are worthy, to those who have said to God, you are worthy. Of what are we saying God is worthy? He's worthy to be first. First in my heart, the center of my whole life, and the Lord of every area of my life. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said. You like my friends at the Cubs game where we were deliberating and we were saying is it worth it to stay around and we ultimately decided no it wasn't and ultimately we were wrong about that decision Each of us has a choice that we must make Is it worth it to follow Jesus and everything that goes along with it Or do we choose to follow our own way and everything that goes along with that So what about you In your life so far, have you decided whether or not it's worth it to follow Jesus? My guess is that there are some here today who wouldn't know exactly how to answer that question. Maybe you've been in in church your whole life. Perhaps you're 15 years old and you haven't really answered that question because this is the first time you've really thought about that. You're starting now in your life to ask the question what is my life going to be about? What do I think is most important? Even though you've grown up in church your whole life, maybe this is the first time you're really wondering. Or maybe you're 50 and you've been in church your whole life, but as we go through the Scripture today, the Holy Spirit will gently let you know, hey, this is you. You don't know what your answer is. And maybe you've said your whole life, God, you are the center. Jesus, you are worthy, but you're feeling weary in your faith. And like me and my friends at the Cubs game, you're you're deliberating. Do I stay? Is it really worth it to stay? Maybe you're not so sure this morning. Well, I hope for anyone who is in one of those places that you would have your ears open and your hearts ready to receive what the Spirit has to say to you today. Because I do believe that anyone who is here listening for a word from God will hear it. Because God is faithful. And for those of you who have put God first and you're confirmed in that decision, despite the difficulties that go along with following Jesus, then to you today, I hope that you hear the Father's voice saying over and over and over, you've called me worthy, I call you worthy. I call you worthy. You are worthy. I hope you hear that today. So let's talk about who is worthy as we dive into our scripture passage It will shed light on that question. After we talk about that for a little bit, we'll end with asking, okay, if if we want to put God first, how do we do that? So you could turn in your bulletin to Matthew 22 or, or in your Bibles. The beginning of this passage, the setting, is a wedding feast, a royal wedding. The king is throwing a wedding for his son. And as we heard, even in the scriptures today, in Isaiah 25, about a feast on a mountain, of rich food, the best of meats, and aged wine, well-aged, rich wine. Or we read in the Psalm that the Lord sets a table for me, even in the presence of my enemies. We know that oftentimes the Bible's favorite uh, illustration or or metaphor or image for the kingdom of God is a feast, and not just any feast, a wedding feast. It was no accident that the Lord's first miracle was at a wedding feast in Cana. It's no coincidence. Because it shows us also, if we go fast forward to the end of the story, to the book of Revelation, where all of this is leading, we see a wedding feast. There, the king is throwing a party for his son. And we see that God's son will marry the people of God, his bride, the church. So in our parable, the king first sends out an invitation to those who already had been invited. course they refused. And so then after a while, the king sends out more invitations to those who were not originally on the invite list. So by the end, everyone is invited. The invite list stands for the Jewish people. The not originally on the invite list stands for the Gentiles. And so both Jew and Gentile all receive by the end of this parable the invitation. The whole world is invited. And look at verse 10. Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Did you catch that? Even the bad and the good are all invited. This tells us that being good or being bad is not a prerequisite or barrier to being invited to the feast. Having a terrible past does not disqualify you from receiving an invitation. Neither does being straight-laced and crossing all your T's and all your I's. You're also not disqualified from the invitation, as you might have been from several parties in your life. (laughs) Everyone is invited. So the point is not, are you invited or not, and how do you get invited? The question is, what do you choose to do with that invitation? But it is important to note, the invitation is for all. Back to Revelation. This is one of the last verses in the entire scriptures, Revelation twenty-two seventeen, The spirit and the bride, it's a wedding, there's a bride. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This echoes an earlier prophecy from the book of Isaiah, which says similarly, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So the invitation is to all. But the parable ends with many are called but few are chosen. So who gets the living water? Who gets to feast at this, this table that is set for free, though it is priceless? Well, the answer is stunningly simple. Whoever desires it whoever wants it it can't be that simple God no, I, I have to do more I'm sure right there's got to be no nope. if you want it it's yours I offer it freely who is worthy of the kingdom those who believe the kingdom is worthwhile God will say you are worthy to those who have said to God you are worthy Let's take a look at those who rejected the invitation. So go back to verse 4. Again, he sent others, because already they'd rejected the invitation once. Again, he sent others saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Did you catch that? Verse 4, they paid no attention. It's like when you're in middle school. Remember those days? Some of you, it's fresh because you're still there. And you have this mountainous crush on someone else. you Are sure that she or he is the love of your life and will be forever until you get your next crush? And worse than being scorned, Worse than being flat out rejected is not even being noticed. She doesn't even know I exist. They paid no attention to God. And let's look at their reasons. They had a farm, they had a business, or if we compare with the same story that's told in Luke's gospel, there the, the excuses are well, I just bought a field, I need to go see it, or I just bought some oxen, I need to go try them out, or I just got married, so I can't come. Let's think about this. Are any of those reasons legitimate excuses? They are not. There is no reason you can't wait on the field or wait on the oxen. There is nothing mutually exclusive about being newly married and going to the wedding of the king's son. This parable makes it really clear. They could have gone. They chose not to for no other reason than that it was not worth it to them. They were busy living their own lives, and they just didn't care. When my friends and I went home early from the Cubs game, what did that reveal about our wicked and and sinful hearts? (laughs) It revealed that we were not diehard Cubs fans. No true Cubs fan, diehard, because I am a Cubs fan, but no diehard Cubs fan would ever have gone back early. And I did vote to stay, I was just overruled, just so you know. (laughs) In every human heart, there is the tendency, not just the capacity, but actually the propensity to ignore God. That's normal. Why is that? Well, sometimes it's just because we get caught up in the world around us and something catches our eye, so to speak, and, and we seem to be more interested in that thing. So the day you got your first paycheck, that felt really good, and you decided, I'm going to spend the rest of my life getting as many of these as I possibly can. Or you get your first taste of romantic love, maybe even accompanied by physical pleasure and intimacy, and you think, I don't care what the Bible says. I want to get as much of this as I can. Or any other pleasure. And you think, now I've found something that is really worthwhile. And jobs, money, relationships, farms, businesses, oxens, oxens, marriage, all of these things are good gifts. Don't get me wrong. These are good gifts given to us by God that we may enjoy them. It works best, though, only works when God is at the center. So G.K. Chesterton, in his pithy way, says, the best way to thank God for brandy is by not drinking too much of it works best when God is at the center of all these things. Otherwise, we may be tempted to take any one of these things or our life as a whole and plop down right in the center where God alone should be. The startling reality is that God leaves us free to make that decision if we choose. So we've been hearing a lot about our freedom. The choice is ours, but we do need to be clear about something. We choose whether we go in out. But it's not up to us to decide what is in and what is out. If we've decided out, we can change our choice and say, I'm in. If you've decided I'm in, you can change your choice and say, I'm out. But you cannot, it's not up to us to decide what is inside or to decide what is outside. Those things are set. When Jesus taught about hell, He did sometimes compare it to an everlasting fire. But other times, he would describe it like he does here in the parable. Look in verse 13. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So weeping, well, you all know what that is. Deep and painful sadness. Heartbreak, loss, loneliness. You don't want that. Darkness. You know what this is. And I'm not talking about the pleasant repose on a summer evening. I'm talking about a cold void filled with emptiness. An enduring and fearful darkness with no hope of light ever to come and the gnashing of teeth. That's not language that we're used to, but we know what this is, too. It's when you're filled with venomous hate for someone else, and they're filled with venomous hate for you. Or you gnash your teeth when you have bitter, bitter regret. Ah. We know what weeping, darkness, and the gnashing of teeth are. We've experienced them to some degree. If you want that forever... You are free to choose it. Or you can choose a wedding feast. Everything prepared, you just have to come and dress up a little. And the choice between weeping, darkness and the gnashing of teeth, or a joyful feast, laughter, light, friendly smiles all around, which sounds more worthwhile. So why is it that so many choose the path that leads to darkness? and weeping over the joyful wedding feast. Because at the beginning, the road to darkness and weeping looks much more attractive because the road starts out, live for yourself and do what you want. Whereas the road to the wedding feast begins differently. Die to yourself and obey another master. You will only choose that way if you know that it will be worth it in the end. If only we had known... What the second game would have been like. If we had known, if you had told us ahead of time, we would not have left. We would have stayed. We would have got a home run baseball for sure. This is not baseball. This is about the life now and the life of the world to come. And God has promised us that what is yet to come is infinitely better. It will be better than anything we have yet experienced. The second game will be better than the first. We don't have to guess about that. We're promised that in the scriptures. And those who put God first in their life, they're the ones who are worthy of that kingdom. No one will be worthy of the kingdom of heaven who does not put God first. So God says, you are worthy to those who have said to God, you are worthy. So how do we put God first? How do you say to God with your life, you are worthy. I just want to talk about one thing. There are many things, but this is perhaps the the tip of the spear. You pursue holiness. You pursue holiness. Right now, you're probably still wondering about the guy who got into the wedding feast but didn't have the wedding garment. What's his story? Because he got the invitation. He even accepted the invitation, and yet he was still thrown out. So recall that all along we've been talking about those who considered God worthy. Those who consider God worthy or or in the parable, those who considered the wedding banquet worthy. And I want you to ask yourself the question, did the man who came without a wedding garment, did he consider this a worthy occasion? Simply put yourself in his shoes. You walk into a wedding feast, you start enjoying the food, but you look around and you realize everybody is dressed to the nines and you're in your street clothes. You will feel very embarrassed. You'll be very self-conscious. You will leave and go home and get something to put on. Or you'll beg your neighbor, give me something to wear. I don't want to be without a wedding garment. That, any of us would do that. Who of you would show up at your friend's wedding and cut off shorts and a tank top? No one, unless it was like a surfer wedding on the beach. But how many of those have you been invited to in your life? Maybe three or four at the most. The truth was, This revealed what was in his heart. He was either lazy or conceited. One of the rules don't apply to me kind of guys. The sin of the man without the garment was presumption. He presumed upon the kindness and generosity of the king, or he thought that he was in some special category. So when we look at it this way, now we understand. I I know when I read this first, I'm like, hey, that was mean. You were mean to that guy. You just threw him out. You probably respond the same way because we're so nice. Americans were so nice. But now you understand, this revealed what was in his heart. He did not count the king worthy. The early church interpreted this need to put on the wedding garment as the pursuit of holiness. This very story, in fact, this parable, and particularly the part about the man without the wedding garment, it was used in the instruction of people who were preparing for baptism as a warning not to enter the Christian life lightly or nonchalantly. It also serves as a warning to any who have grown up in the church and assume that because of that, you're automatically in the kingdom, even though you do not have God first in your heart. These are those who hear what was read earlier, come by wine. And milk. Come feast at the table for free without cost. And they say, sounds good. I'm there. I like milk. I like wine. I like free. So they come. But then they start following Jesus, and they realize that following Jesus, actually right away, you don't even have to work up to it, at the beginning is about complete submission and surrender to him and his commands. And they say, if I can, I'll take the feast Without the fast. In case you haven't noticed, following Jesus is either a season of feasting or sometimes it's a season of fasting in this life. In the life to come, it will only be feasting, praise God. But for now, there's a call to holiness, a call to come and to die and to surrender. It won't work to want the king's banquet, but not to want the king himself. So the Apostle John writes to the churches, Whoever says, yes, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is made complete. By this we may know that we are in him, that is, in Jesus. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. So Jesus has each one of us on a journey to become more like him. Don't worry, because no one is perfect. And it actually doesn't matter how far all along the journey you are, all that matters is that you keep saying yes to him in the pursuit of holiness. Why is this? Why does our effort matter? Why can't everything just be done for us? Again, because God wants to know what is in your heart. It's like when with gift giving, you know the phrase, it's the thought that counts. You know it's bad when somebody gives you a gift, and before you even pull off the ribbon, they're saying, Just remember, it's the thought that counts. And you open it up, and you say, exactly. I can see how much thought you put into this. You did not think. So the reason our effort matters is it reveals where our heart is at. So how do we go about pursuing this holiness? We learn the commands of God, and then we seek to obey. It's simple to understand, though difficult to execute. We learn the commands of God, and then we try to do them. We find out what's pleasing to God, and that's what we build our lives around. This is why reading the Bible is so important. Not so that we can feel good about ourselves for having performed some pious duty. It's so that we can know what are the commands so that we can then obey them. And again, back to the Apostle John in his letter to the children. And this is love for God, he says, that we keep his commandments. But then he goes on, and his commandments are not burdensome. It is a joy, not a burden. It's how we show love for God. Seeking the holiness of God and saying yes to his work of making you like him. So if you want to be counted worthy of the kingdom of heaven, put God first by pursuing His holiness. For any of you who desire to do this, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this task. You will not fail, because ultimately it is God. I mean, think about it. He prepares the wedding feast. He does so much. All we do is put on the garment. We don't have much. He's going to pull the large majority of the weight here. If you desire to do this, if you desire the kingdom, If you desire to pursue holiness, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish. For He is faithful and He gives strength to all who believe in Him. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.